You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Hey, man. Well, it's uh, good to be back in South Bay. I know it's been a little bit. We've had a few different things going on. Now, last week, um, we actually played hooky. Some of you know that. You know, uh, I went to the Church of Heinz Field with the uh, Steelers. <laughs> no, no worries. It was um, a much-needed break. Jack and I had a great time. Uh, weather was phenomenal. Uh, the Steelers fans are some of the best fans on the face of the planet, just saying. Uh, very loving, all-inclusive, even though there were people from other uh, NFL teams there. Uh, Jack, uh, we wanted to encourage Calvin. There was even a Patriot fan there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah we're a Patriot. We had these four young guys behind us. It was awesome. We totally, totally clicked, totally connected. Uh, there were two Steelers fans, a Patriot fan, and a Bronco going into a bar. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there, were, there were four of them, though. And um, so Jack took a picture of the Patriot, and uh, he had stated that, you know, he hated the Broncos. I, again, he was a Patriot fan. It wasn't a Steeler fan that said that. But he did claim that he was our good luck charm, and maybe there was something to be said for that because we did end up beating the uh, <coughs> Broncos. Um, <laughs> The Bronco fan, uh, this, I think it was, was the, the young guy's name was Ryan, wasn't it? A- anyways, he was talking all kinds of smack at the beginning of the game, and then he got really quiet for about three quarters of it. He did kind of come to life in the end. I was going to buy him a beer there at one point, and I didn't realize they cut off alcohol after the fourth quarter, so wasn't able to provide him any liquid encouragement there at that point at all. But uh, it was a good time, definitely good to be back. So appreciative of our tech team, our worship team. You guys are phenomenal. Yeah. I was even t- I was talking to Brian at the beginning. I mean, for years we've had that little intro, you know, when we go live, the uh, instrumental intro. And then to know that there were words to it, it's like that's become one of my favorite songs because I really do feel like it encompasses the spirit of South Bay. But anyways, definitely good to be here. Good morning to each and every one of you, whether you're here in person, outside on the deck, Watching at home, wherever you may be, welcome to the South Bay Church. We'd like to uh, go ahead and open up with a word of prayer here, and then we'll start rolling in 1 Peter 4, which uh, continuing our series here. But Father, it is so good to be here this morning. Uh, I so appreciate the relationships that I have here in this church, the friends that we have, uh, the, the, the next gen coming up, our youth, our teens, our preteens, the, the, the young, youngins. And um, God, it just really does feel so much like family, and it's something that I do not want to take for granted. Thank you for blessing me personally with this. Uh, I hope that all of us feel like we're blessed to be a part of this fellowship. I do want to pray for those that uh, currently have health issues. We know, God, that you're more than aware of each and every individual, uh, right down to the hairs on our heads is... Uh, decreasing as they may be. But uh, Father, please be with everyone. Uh, Be with those that have suffered loss over the past 18, 19 months. Uh, Continue to be, as we know biblically, you are our comforter. And the peace that so many of us clamor for before we became disciples is something you do provide for us in your kingdom. Father, uh, be with the uh, remainder of our service here today. Please speak through your word powerfully through me today. And uh, I love you, God, and I'm so grateful for your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I got a few different devices up here this morning. I, I, I'm old school. I like notes on paper. 
I, I picked up a stack of papers this morning. It was not my notes. But I'm, glad, I'm grateful that everything kind of syncs. My notes were on my phone, and Jack happened to have her computer, so I uh, airdropped it to her, and uh, we'll just kind of go from there. But again, primary text this morning comes out of 1 Peter 4, and uh, I don't know about you, but there's a whopping five verses that we've been looking at, and are they not packed with just an amazing degree of wealth when it comes to God, our relationship with him, the fact that we are living in the end times, that Satan's out there looking to destroy. But one of the things I love about Peter is he is so incredibly vocal, and he cuts to the bottom line. He cuts to the chase so quickly. So we see this fisherman take up his pen and write about the suffering that the disciples were going through, and he addresses the reality of the end times, and he sums it up with this amazing game plan about really how very, very, very succinctly, without beating around the bush, several directives in one goal. Some of what I'm going to be talking about today will be some very minor reminders in light of what you've already heard from Brian Craig and Owen Thomas. So just kind of jumping right into it here this morning, the title of our series has been By His Power and For His Glory, and with that, we'll go ahead and move forward here. As I said, Peter has informed us that the end times are near. He's contemplating the bizarre behavior of Nero and the persecution that was looming on the horizon and the probability that his life in and of itself was going to be coming to an end soon. And with all of that, the fact that the end times were near, that Jesus was coming back to bring a dramatic end to the world and everything in it. And Peter knew that the next major event that he was going to uh, that, that God was going to bring to the earth would be just that, the return of Jesus. Now, I've noticed personally, as Christians, I think we can make a couple of mistakes with this information. First one is, we can uh, feel like we've got it all figured out. And, you know, if you know your Bible at all, the thing that, was, that Jesus made very clear when he was asked constantly, when was his kingdom coming? When was the end going to take place? When was the temple going to be destroyed? And obviously, there was a lot that was being thought of as far as this physical aspect of things. And then, when would the Romans be kicked out? You know, when were they going to overthrow the existing government? And Jesus continued to take them back to that those physical things weren't what it was about. It was having this spiritual relationship with God, knowing that ultimately you would be a part of God's family for eternity, being able to spend eternity with God without all the other chaos and drama that goes on on the face of this planet. So I think we can make that mistake, thinking we've got to figure it out. And then Jesus himself says, I don't know. The Father knows, but I don't know. But you know what? We need to be prepared. And so much of his message was about preparation. Now, I think the second mistake that we can make, which I find myself making quite frequently, not conscious of it, but when I think it back through, is the fact that I can lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And I think that can play a lot into how we conduct ourselves, whether we have that knowledge, that's something that's planted in there subconsciously, so that we are prepared, whether it was the widows and the lamps and the oil. So much of what Jesus talked about was being ready. So in 1 Peter 4, verse 7... 1 Peter 4, verse 7, says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. 
Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Obviously, there's a reason he makes that statement. That's a place we can go, and we'll look at that in a little bit more detail as we move along here this morning. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You know, as we see, again, we take a look at these five verses here. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about what's here. Matthew 16, Matthew 24. Uh, Paul talks about it a lot, but specifically in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 6. And then Peter, as we see here in verses 7 through 11, and then 2 Peter 3, all these individuals voice practical concerns regarding how to behave and the difficulties that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. And I would imagine most of you agree there's probably been a few more difficult Ds the last few years than maybe we've ever experienced in our lives. I, I, I don't know about you, I've never lived through a pandemic before. This is a first for me, trying to, have to figure out how to navigate all this stuff. And we seem to lay, live in this age of information But it's also an age of misinformation. There's a lot of stuff out there that's going on. And Peter's a very practical person. When he addressed the realities of living in the end times, he becomes really pragmatic, very simple and direct, and he gives us several directives to obey and one goal to pursue, which we're going to look at here this morning. First directive that I'm going to hit is, and again, briefly, because we've already talked about some of this, is that Christians must use good judgment and stay calm and focused so that we can pray effectively. Peter says in verse 7, he tells us to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. I mean, without that sobriety, without realizing the the, the need that we have for God, especially with all the chaos, there's so much stuff that can choke us out today. So many things vying for our time. And Peter brings it down to what's really significant in the times that we're living in today. Being of sober mind means to think about and evaluate situations spiritually, maturely, and correctly, remaining calm, cool, and collected, especially under pressure. Being of sober mind describes someone who is mentally alert and watchful, living in the light of Jesus' second coming, that, so that with that, once we've taken on the proper mindset, we really have the ability to engage God in prayer the way that we need to, to cover all the various issues and challenges we have in life today. When it comes to prayer, really understanding that prayer is our greatest asset because it's through prayer that we join our weaknesses to God's strength and our ignorance to God's wisdom. I think you you might want to take a picture of this one. I think this is pretty significant because if we really hold on to this, we'll always have an understanding of the need we have for God and the ability to approach God the way that we need to to make up for whatever shortcomings or weaknesses or challenges or struggles that we may be in the midst of. So again, prayer is our greatest asset because it's through prayer that we join our weaknesses to God's strength and our ignorance to God's wisdom. You know, you think about this when it comes to the specifics here. When, it, when Jesus Christ was under pressure, you know, you think about the 40 days in the desert, Right? And if it wasn't for his reliance on God and God's wisdom and God's word, would he have been able to come through that? 
And then the other one that stands, so we have, it's amazing, we see this incredible relationship that he has at the beginning of his ministry, but also at the end of his ministry. How much, how much more so was there that need for prayer when he was in the garden, before the, the day before he was crucified? So we can see the strength that he derived. He was able to carry through on God's plan because of his relationship with God. Now, when it comes to not praying, not understanding the significance of that, and that what did he tell his guys to do as he went off to pray? Stay alert and pray. Now, how did Peter do with that? How did the guys do with that? You know, we know with Peter, Jesus was alert, and it enabled him to thwart the scheming of Satan. Peter, on the other hand, was not, and what did, what did his lack of prayer lead to? The following day, what did he do? I mean, he spent three years with Jesus. He walked on water, and yet he denies Christ. So I think just being able to understand the contrast and the need that we have for God's wisdom and God's strength, and that ultimately that comes through prayer. Second directive comes out of verse 8. says the end of all, you know, again, keeping in mind that the end of all times is near. And in verse 8 it says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. You know, love each other deeply or fervently. Fervent is an athletic term used when in, in regards to athletic endeavors, uh, you know, like a runner straining towards the finish line or a pole vaulter trying to do everything he can to get over that bar. And disciples, as disciples, we're called to love each other deeply. You know, times like this ultimately require that we stretch our love to the limit for one another in the body of Christ. Amen anticipating other people's needs, making sacrifices to meet those needs. And Jesus can't make it any clearer than he does in John 13, 35. We all know this passage. And the significance is that of that deep love for one another is so that people see Christ in us. When they look at us, they see Christ. John 13, 35 says, by, by this, that deep love, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, think about it, the turmoil, the division within our country today, it's, it, it's been interesting for me, and if you've been around for a while as a Christian, when it comes to culture, it's amazing how worldly culture slips into the church. Why? We all came out of the world. We all have our family of origins. There's all these different things that we've grown up with, culture that we've adopted, and then we become disciples, and we're supposed to step aside from that stuff, cut it off, push it away, but... The culture of our world can leak and edge its way back in. You know, there's nothing more destructive and undermining to our own personal testimonies or our testimony as a corporate body of believers when it comes to sharing of the good news than strife, disunity, and backbiting that can go along and take place among Christians because of our opinions. Yeah. Loving each other deeply, loving each other fervently is a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that put others first, a love that looks to the interests of others versus our own. You know, Paul talks about it in the entire chapter of Philippians 2. And he, he cites this amazing example of who Jesus Christ was, what Jesus gave up. The fact that he came down out of heaven, took on this frail human form that we have, so that we would have the opportunity to be what he already was. Eternal in this amazing relationship with God the Father. 
You know, we, so we see that in Philippians 2. And the other thing that we see is that it's got to be a love that's willing to share the gospel. And part of that is, in light of the title today, opening your life to others. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, someone loved you, just thinking through this, they loved you so much that they walked with you. They helped you become a disciple. They demonstrated their life, their walk, their relationship with God so that we understood, not by words, but more so by deeds, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So we love each other deeply when we speak the truth in love and we help each other embrace Jesus' last words as he calls us to continue to teach one another daily to obey everything that he personally laid out during his three-year ministry through the Gospels. And this type of love brings God glory and protects us from the evil one. You know, just thinking through this, loving each other deeply, I think we, we do a pretty good job overall with this in the church and that many of you are involved in very deep discipling relationships with one another. And that's where this loving each other deeply really comes in, and that we're willing to speak the truth in love. We're willing to point people back to the path. You're willing to point me back to the path when I stray, or I don't have the kind of godly attitude that I need to have. I'm super grateful for the Wingies and the role they've been, I mean, just the role they play in our life in general, but Jack and I had, had been going through kind of a challenging patch. You know, we're, uh, I'm very good with everything that's going on around me, usually with the exception of what's going on under my own roof, and making sure that I'm making the time to communicate with her, to love her, to affirm her, to, you know, the, the things that are significant to her that help us with our schedule and meeting the needs that we have throughout the coastal region. Uh, some of you may know we're, we're, we're heading up a task force right now in the north region that's having some challenges, and uh, just feel very blessed. God's blessed us with an incredible team that makes up that task force. We have the Hollands, the Webbers, Carrie Lounsbury, Greg Russell, and then there's a support group outside of that, the predominant task force. But I think I can get so caught up in everything that's going on around me, I forget this woman right here in the front row. And the Winchies have been doing a phenomenal job of, you know, I mean, it's the basic stuff that we would tell others to do, but that we aren't doing. Man, Karina holds my, my hand to the fire, man. I'm just telling you. She's relentless. Love you, Karina. <laughs> you know, one of the other things, too, I think just thinking this through when it comes to discipling and our relationships, there's this amazing Aesop's fable that demonstrates the significance of deep love and unity. And there was this line that used to prowl around this field, and there were these four bulls. And... Um, Whenever the lion came in, these bulls were so tight, they would back tail to tail to tail with their horns out, and ultimately what would take place is the lion couldn't make any inroads with those bulls. So eventually, though, the lion got kind of sharp here, got a little smart and devious, he pulls one bull aside, and he starts talking to him about how, you know those other three bulls, man, they're talking a lot of smack about you. Yeah, they're, they're, you would not believe some of the stuff they've told. I mean, here's some of the things they've said. So he wins that bull over. That bull ignores the other three, goes off to another part of the, the uh, ranch, farmland, whatever. And then he starts working on each of the other ones. So eventually he gets through all four bulls. They no longer have a relationship. They no longer trust one another. They were willing to listen to him, the lion, who really obviously wasn't in much of a relationship with him, but now he's, he's made his way in. So the bulls go off to four different corners of the field, and guess what happens? Lion takes him out one by one by one until he takes out every single one of them. The bulls refuse to talk to one another anymore. They refuse to have 
enter into this amazing relationship that they had had for years. So the lion was able to use that to promptly kill and eat each and every one of them. Now, keeping in mind, when those bulls were unified, what chance did the lion have? But by sort of getting in there with a little gossip, a little slander, a little defamation of character, it destroyed. They allowed the lion to destroy the relationships. And, you know, I think it's where it talks about love covers over a multitude of sin. You know, when we were young leaders out in the East region, there were mistakes that I made. I had a propensity to be harsh. Um, it was just a lot of things, very demanding. And then we went down to Orange County. And we, we were, God really blessed the East region. We grew like crazy. I mean, our campus ministry was phenomenal. We, when we, Jackie and I started there, it was a group of about, it was a zone of 70. When, the, when we left to move, we moved down to Orange County, it was around 700 people. And this was from 1990 when we were converted to about 97, 98 when we left. And uh, I wasn't super fired up about leaving. You know, we were asked, voluntold. Um, and, uh, you know, we took the skill set that we had in this template that we had developed in East Orange County. We didn't love the people. I, I was really resentful of even that whole transition. Bottom line is, when we had our political upheaval in 2003, we, go, we went back, and when we ran into people from the East region, we would apologize. You know what they would tell us? Shut up. We don't want to hear it. We know you guys loved us. Love covers a multitude of sin. We, we couldn't even go there with people. Now, on the flip side of that coin, going into Orange County, whenever we ran into people and we apologized, you know what the response was? I forgive you. <laughs> but it just shows the degree of unity that's brought with love and understanding and not allowing Satan to get into the mix. You know, Peter addresses it again in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. When it comes to Aesop's fable, the, ver the uh, verse, verse 8 is pretty strong here. He says, be alert. Again, this is a secondary warning. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And then in Galatians 6.10, it says, therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. But it doesn't stop there. It says, especially especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We, not only are we supposed to be amazing in this area when it comes to the world, doing good to everyone, but we're supposed to take it up a notch with each other. So I think it's kind of cool. I mean, you know, as disciples, what is the thing that binds us? What's the thing that unifies us? It's Jesus Christ. Which takes us to the third directive, Again, keeping in mind the end of all times, end of all things, says Christians must be hospitable to one another. So to love each other deeply can be found, and the reason I hit that love aspect is that it's kind of hard to be hospitable if you're not loving, right? And it's, I, you know, and again, we, we can, this, uh, I wanted to make sure from a contextual standpoint, we can see what the lead into hospitality is here. This need to deeply love one another. So to love each other deeply can be found in the practical expression that's offered in hospitality. Hospitality is a Christian imperative. And with that, let us be known for being generous in our hospitality. Hospitality. Philoxenos, loving strangers. It's made up of two words. Philos, love, and stranger, 
foreigner guest would, would be Zenos. And here in 1 Peter 4, it's Philox, uh, Philoxnia. And I'm, you know, Devin, come help me out after the fact. I, I know my pronunciation here probably leaves something to be desired. But ultimately, it instructs us to show hospitality to strangers as well as to one another. So there's a tangible, meaningful, inclusive concern for one another in the church. It's not enough just to care for one another. And, and this is one of the things that, you know, I'm so grateful for the Barnetts and Harlem and Vanya. Just some of the, the, the talks that they came out in, in 20, 2018, 2019 to help us understand how to connect better. You know, there's, and it's, it's kind of funny, this whole family of origin thing, whenever Jackie and I study the Bible with someone, first thing we do is we get into our stuff. We talk about where we've come from, our family of origin, what our lives were like before we became Christians, why we decided to make that decision to make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives. And what better place for that to take place than when we're comfortable in a hospitable environment? And I think with, with COVID, and I get it, I mean, there, there were health implications, there still are health implications, but... We need to get back to that lost art of hospitality. You can, do it in, you can do it outside. You can do it in the home. You can do it just in interaction with people. But we are called to take care of one another and the lost. You know, when we first got here, I mean, this church is an amazingly hospitable church. I'll never forget going out to get the paint for our house in Redondo and coming back and finding our cupboards filled with food. Johnson's came into our home, and my, my daughter went through a pretty rough time when we were up in Ventura when it came to the church and relationships, and she didn't want us going back into the paid ministry because of what she saw us go through up there, but that, that act of hospitality had such an amazing impact on her heart. She's still on her journey. Uh, I, I anticipate she'll be back someday. It may, may take my death to accomplish that, but the seed's in there, and it's so funny. She's a hairstylist, and she's constantly taking input and advice and stuff that she learned in the kingdom. People can't believe how wise she is for her age. Well, this is what we have through God. It's in there. You know, one of the, one of the other situations, amen. One of the other situations that really stood out to me, and most of you, well, some of you do would remember them, Jackie and uh, Jim Malin. This one blew my mind in that, they're one of the first people to invite us into their home. And I was so blown away by their heart and their perspective. It was definitively the kingdom first. Jim had a very old vintage truck. They lived in an incredibly small apartment, but they knew it was significant in life. It was about making sure that they had the ability to do what God called them to do in the kingdom. Be hospitable. Love others. Jackie was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, she taught their kids. Jim was a teacher. And for us to be invited into their home, for them to share our lives and their conviction with us over a meal, I, I'm telling you, to this day, I, 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 we interact on Facebook from time to time. I tell them, I'm like, dude, I wish our interaction, our time together would have been longer. I, I love the Malins. They're just such an amazing couple. But it was because of that kind act of hospitality, them inviting us into their homes, and us being given the opportunity to learn a little bit about them. So, you know, even thinking this through, hospitality is something that needs to be taking place in our D groups. 
both inwardly, we need to make sure we've got it going on amongst ourselves first so that we can turn it to an outward focus, which will give us the ability to have an amazing impact on our communities. The most basic form of hospitality is opening up your home. We were in Honduras, part of a medical brigade years ago. There was this principal of a school down there, and mind you, most of these people were making $100 a week or less. She wasn't a disciple. But she was so impressed with the disciples that came into her community bringing this medical aid, immunizations, dental. I mean, there was a whole variety of things that we did. She opened her home to the group of volunteers. She cooked a meal for all of us. And I'm telling you, I, I was so hard-pressed to be a recipient because I knew the sacrifice that went into this. But all of that played out with her becoming a disciple. And it was interesting she viewed us as being hospitable with what we brought in, but she's the one that brought us into her home. And just, again, thinking through the impact that can take place with this. You know, I think a lot of times we can get caught up with, when it comes to hospitality, how perfect everything needs to be. And keeping in mind that with the early Christians, hospitality covered a much broader spectrum of things. If there were Christians traveling from town to town to town, rather than going to the local tavern inn to spend time to hang out. Disciples understood what a dangerous environment that was. Just being on the road. I mean, there's robbers. Needless to say, you go to the local inn. There's prostitutes. There's robbers. There's all kinds of crazy going on. Hospitality to the first century Christians was a matter of giving people not just a meal, but a place to to stay, a safe place while they were traveling. So really understanding when it comes to even what we do, Sometimes we can get caught up in the communities we live in and what people's expectations are that we're much more focused on, well, you know, I really can't have anybody over tonight because our house is kind of a mess. Or, you know, I, I don't know why I did this, but I, I wanted to see what Martha Stewart's perspective was on Thanksgiving dinner, okay? And I think some of us, you know, we're into the Rachel Rays and the Martha Stewarts and the different individuals that are out there, and, there's, and not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm looking at her Thanksgiving dinner table setting. I'm like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. She, her, fancy, her table setting, took, uh, there was Wedgwood wine glasses, set of six, $225. There was a Francis Palmer pottery narrow neck vase, $650. There was a Sawkill Senate armchair, $2,300. And I think sometimes we've got to be careful we don't get caught up in how awesome the presentation is, really understanding people don't really care if you got a $650 vase on your table. Now, I, I, do, have to see, I do have to give this to Martha Stewart, and I'm surprised she even allowed this to be published. Her tablecloth was a $24 tablecloth from Target. And, but here's the thing, I, I, you know, I started playing this out, and I, I go, I'll bet you she throws that out after dinner. But anyway, so what I'm trying to say here is it doesn't matter what the setting looks like. It doesn't matter if you've got fine china to break out or actual silver silverware to break out. What matters is this, giving people the opportunity to see your life. Getting people the opportunity to see the relationships you have with one another. That is so much more significant than what you got on the table or even the food that you serve. I mean, there have been times Jackie and I spend, you know, some of you have been over, you know, 
Uh, our leaders knew the first year we came in, I cooked tri-tip for 60-something people. Jackie did twice baked potatoes for that same number of people. We had an entire day of cooking that took place because we wanted to serve those of you that serve the church. So I understand what it means to prep. And there are those times too, man, you know, well, I'll go down to Whole Foods or Vons or Ralph's or whatever, Smart and Final, and I'll pick up a couple of chickens and break them up. Maybe we'll do a side dish. Maybe we don't, you know, uh, you know, kind of a, a little, little bit of an ADD moment here. We had the uh, butlers over for dinner last night. And uh, Jack and Martini were kind of back and forth. And Martini's like, well, you, you know, you want me to bring something? So for Jackie, that meant dinner. For, oh, she said, yes. Here, let me, no. <laughs> you want to turn around and tell everybody? Yeah, she goes, I'll bring something for dinner. So Jackie's all fine. So they walk in with this rectangular bowl. It was about 10 by 10. And I'm thinking, you know, hey, man. And I didn't, I wasn't part of the loop. So I'm thinking, okay, Jack's probably got something else ordered, something else coming. Well, he just had salad. For those of you that know me, I'm, I'm not, you know, this major salad guy. I was hungry, man. There was nothing left on my plate. And we did, we did order some stuff to go along with it. But anyway, so, you know, it really doesn't matter, though. Butlers, did we have a good time? It was an awesome time hanging out. And I think just really getting back to that, guys, it's you that make up the meal. It's you that have the impact. It's your family of origin, who you are, what you've overcome, what you're still fighting for in your relationship with God. That's what hospitality really is. It's not about Gordon Ramsay or Rachel Ray or any of the other ones out there. When it comes to our connecting with people, it's much more effective to help someone follow Jesus over a meal, a cup of coffee, a common task, whatever. And you think about this. Why is it when doctors, with all the schooling that they have, don't step right into the operating room? I mean, you would think all that schooling would take care of things, right? Right, Calvin? <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, what is it, the AT&T commercial, uh, Good Enough, or whatever they think it is. I mean... Do I, do I want someone that's just got the degree, but maybe, you know, I, do D's get degrees on that level or not? C's get degrees, okay. I mean, if I have my choice between, you know, the, the, the top of the class or the guy that just got, just squeaked through, which am I going to want? Which are you going to want? I think it's just keeping this in mind when it comes to our, our time with people, our, what we say is so pale in comparison to what we do. Same thing with teachers. I mean, do you, you want a teacher that's just come out of the classroom, stepping right into the class? And there may be those instances where it happens, but now there, I, I need some, like, prep, some crazy training if I'm going to step into a classroom in front of 30, 40, 50 teenagers. I mean, just saying, I, I, I would hope that you'd want people that have that practical application, that ability to actually interact with your, the young men and young women in your family. But life is so significant. Jesus walked with his guys. Jesus demonstrated for his guys. And what better place for us to do that than in our own homes? Again, it's much more effective to teach someone as you go through life together than when you live separately and come together only briefly for a teaching. When you're hospitable, it will provide the blessing of loving one another and teaching one another in the normal course of life. You know, that's the other thing I love about this too. Jesus kind of had this dialed in. When it comes to a meal... I mean, we all eat, right? Yeah. Might take a little bit more to have a little bit of a, you know, additional food to spread out on a couple more plates, but it's not like we're, out, we're being hit with this huge time component. 
And I think one of the things that can happen with hospitality is that hospitality does not ask, do I know you well? Do I like you? What it asks ultimately is, how can I love you, serve you, minister to you? And we are called to offer hospitality without grumbling or complaining, as we saw in the passage. Now, here's the thing with hospitality. There's always a cost involved, right? Additional food. Some additional time. I don't want, this is, I'm just being, I'm confessing here. I don't know what, why or how, but I have an armchair in our family room. And it's set up, you know, kind of perfectly squared off with the TV that's up on the wall. And, you know, it's amazing when people first come over, that seems to be the chair of choice. And I remember when we first moved in there, I'm like, I'm thinking, I said, what the heck are you doing in my chair? And I, I don't think I've ever asked anybody to move, uh, but I definitely felt that way. So, and I think this, is, this can be an issue with hospitality. That's why Peter says to do it without grumbling, and that when we think of ourselves as owners rather as stewards, there is that cost that's involved. This is, you know, some, when someone comes in, it's someone else's space. You're eating, they're eating your food. They're taking up your time. And notice right here the word your. So when I think of ourselves, or when we think of ourselves as owners rather than stewards, we can become selfish and resentful. What are you doing in my chair? When, you're, when you think of it as your house, your food, your chair, your time, you're not thinking biblically. We are owners of nothing. We are owners of nothing. But we are stewards of everything that God has blessed us with. So when you think of yourselves as owners rather than as stewards, we become selfish and resentful. When you think of it as your house, your food, whatever it may be, the way God wants us to think about it is it's God's house. It's God's food. It's God's time, not ours. So this kind of grumbling is ultimately when we grumble about what we have to do, our stuff, our time, our food, our space, we're ultimately complaining against God. And here's, he's the one who commands us to be hospitable. God wants us to love and care for one another. And, you know, think about this. So many of you have been blessed with that extra bedroom, extra car, or the ability to add an extra chair to the dinner table. And, you know, sometimes we get caught up in this thing, too, when it comes to evangelism. Uh, relational versus cold contact. Think about it. When you first went to school, especially if you moved into a new school district, did you have any relationships at that school? So weren't any of the interactions you had cold contact? Right? Think about your best friends. Before you knew them, were they your best friend? Was there a relationship? It was cold contact. I mean, how many of you have got amazing relationships today because you took that opportunity, i.e. cold contact, to have someone in your home? A neighbor. I mean, you've heard our story. If it wasn't for Bruce and Nora Teague, we wouldn't be here today. Where did it start for me? Not wanting anything to do with the guy because he was an evangelist. But you know what? I do eat. It's kind of hard to say no to a meal when somebody keeps inviting you over to their home over and over and over again to sit down to a meal. That meal was a thing that was a lock for me because I got to see their two-year-old daughter who was nothing like our kids. And realizing... Man, there's some juju or something funky going on here because this, this kid is amazing. And I wanted that. I wanted a two-year-old that would actually listen to me when I asked them to do something 
rather than being viewed as a junior terrorist, which we found out years later that was the relationship our kids had in the church. But it changed up because of this, life together. So just keep keeping in mind, it starts somewhere, and hospitality is the key. Who are you sharing your life with? Who are you inviting in? You know, are we going after being alert or sober-minded to love deeply, to use our gifts to be faithful stewards when it comes to serving God and serving others? So these commands, these directives, they have one goal in mind. Verse 11, how God can be glorified. You know, how many church conflicts could be resolved? How many egos would be put in place if God's glory, not our own glory, was the goal? You know, when we make it our goal to glorify God, we're comfortable leaving the results of our prayers in God's hands. We're quicker to grant forgiveness to those who've hurt us, to show hospitality to others. By doing so, we're less concerned with ourselves and more concerned with others and quicker to serve and use our spiritual gifts because ultimately the end is at hand. So just a couple of uh, practicals here this morning. Application, challenge, however you want to look at it. And these end times as disciples, use good judgment and sober-minded and alert so be sober-minded and alert so that we can pray effectively. We need to pray effectively. We need it more today than any other time in our history, our personal history. Stay fervent or impassioned in our love for one another expressed through hospitality. And use our gifts and talents to serve one another and build God's church in South Bay strong. You know, it's one of the things I appreciate about the Jacksons. They always have people in their home. And you think about all the people that they brought through Christ through the years. I don't think it's by chance. I do believe it's because they love God and they love people enough to get them in their home. So using all this, you know, one of the ways we have the opportunity to demonstrate hospitality this afternoon, we have Mark St- Mia Steberg's uh, memorial coming up. What an awesome gesture for us as disciples, knowing that we're going to be here to park out on the street and walk in so our guests, so we can be hospitable to those that are coming from wherever it may be that aren't part of the church to be a part of this memorial if we leave the lot open for them. I mean, that's again, just really thinking about that. How can I serve someone else? And then finally, let's be energized by one goal, that God be glorified. Take that one step at the beginning of the week. Write down one doable, concrete step at the beginning of the week that, whether it be small or large, that you'll put into practice. Then share it with someone who will help you get there. You know, I I need accountability in my life. Thank you, Karina. Um, You know, I think just making sure that we get somebody else in that loop so that we maintain the focus. We all have good intentions. But it's like with me this morning. I, I went to pick up my notes, thought I picked up my notes, didn't pick up my notes. You know, we're just really thinking through how we're living, being deliberate in the impact that we want to have. So get someone else in there with whatever it is that you plan on going after. And right now we're going to go ahead and transition to communion. You know, just thinking through this whole thing with hospitality in a conversation I had with Brian Craig yesterday. And I appreciate Brian a ton. He's a great influence in my life. But communion reminds me of the care and planning that went into the last meal that Jesus had with the 12. Think about it. Very deliberate. Wash their feet. That was a huge aspect of hospitality back during that period of time and during that culture. People walking around with their sandals, you know, dirt, filth, whatever, tracked into the home. Him taking the time to individually wash each one of their feet. The, the, the prep time that went into the meal that he was able to serve up. 
And I, I don't know why, I just I have this picture as he's It's humbling to watch someone's feet. And I just have this picture of him having this direct, intimate interaction with each of those men as he was doing it. And then just knowing that this was the son of God, yet that's the degree he was willing to go to. And he, taking it a step further, knowing that the betrayer, Judas, he didn't, he didn't slight him. He got the same food everybody else got. He got the same foot washing everybody else got. So much so the guys in that group didn't even know. They wanted to know who the betrayer was going to be. And you would think, I don't know about you, I don't know that I could have masked that. Because for me it would have been masking my perspective on Judas. But what that tells me is Jesus didn't have to mask anything because he loved Judas. And thinking that through. And that he knew he was going away. He knew he was going to come back. But the time, the impact that that meal must have had, and I think as we go to communion right now, that's what Jesus wants for us. He wants that same degree of fellowship. He wants that same degree of intimacy. And he wants us to know how much he loves us. So with that, let's go ahead and bow our heads and go to the Father in prayer. Father, you are such an amazing God to know the extremes that you were willing to go to, how mindful you were of your creation and knowing that you wanted this relationship with us and giving us the ability to have free choice, to make decisions on our own, and ultimately knowing that it would eventually lead to a new covenant where your son would have to come down from heaven and die for us so that we could be ushered into a right relationship with you. Father, I will always be grateful for that. I pray for each of us this morning as we reflect on the fruit of the vine and the bread. The, the, the fruit of the vine that represents your blood, the bread that represents Jesus' body, that we understand the fellowship we're entering into as we take part in this meal, we take part in this offering, the communion, knowing again the extremes that you went to so that we could have a relationship with you. Father, I pray that as we think through it, we think through the sin that we need to repent of personally, knowing that the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us and present us pure and blameless before you. And that we also are grateful for this gift that was given without, just, it just blows my mind. There's absolutely nothing we could do for it, but the extremists that you were willing to go to so that we could have this right relationship with you. Father, set us up for an incredible week. Help us to be much more mindful about being hospitable. And with that, Father, I love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.